Good evening. It is uh, very good to see so many of you here tonight. Last, well, the last time I came to you on Wednesday was two weeks ago. And if you remember, I discussed at the time Daniel chapter 2, verses 20, and 20, 20 to 22, where Daniel is praising God for his sovereignty in connection with what we're going to discuss tonight. After I had spoken about that particular subject last time, uh, one of you, who shall remain nameless, said to me, I was hoping you would talk about the statue and all that other, you know, all the stuff that happens in there. And I said, well, hey, in a couple of weeks I get another chance. And so here we are, part two, and this time we're going to indeed discuss the statue. Now, if you're among those folks who are history buffs, you're going to love tonight. If you fell asleep during history class, you're going to hate it. Hopefully you won't sleep tonight, all right? Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, it is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, it's always profitable, it's always beneficial, right? Even if uh, we may not think so at the time. So, as I mentioned, uh, last time I concentrated on verses 20, and 22, 20 to 22, which is where Daniel is talking about the fact that he had been given the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, he was praising God for that fact, and we know that God is the one who alone can give perfect interpretations of any dream, of anything in the future. Because he is the one that has ordained the future, and so therefore he has perfect knowledge of it. Uh, we remember Joseph in Genesis, who interpreted Pharaoh's dreams about the famine and the subsequent, or the plenty and the, then the subsequent famine. Uh, I said at the time that Daniel demonstrates uh, throughout the book, as well as in that passage, that God alone is sovereign and that his will is carried out by every creature on earth, even those who do not know him. God is still uh, in control of those individuals. No one can stay God's hand. No matter what we do, say, or think, it's all been ordained by God for his own purposes and for good ends. Even our sin is used by God for good ends. And, we, and again, we use Joseph as an example of perhaps the clearest of the examples in the Old Testament where he tells his brothers, you intended it for evil. You know, the, the point making that they had sold him into slavery. But then he goes on to say, but God meant it for good. And so God always means it for good. Uh, and so let's uh, now read chapter 2, verses 31 to 45 of Daniel. And it reads, You, O king, were watching, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large, large and of extraordinary radiance, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued watching until a stone was broken off without hands, 
And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed to pieces all at the same time. And they were like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. I will continue reading in verse 36 in a little while. So in the run-up to the events that are described here, in this part of the passage, we're given some background by the writer. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he called all his magicians to him to both tell him the dream and to interpret its meaning. Now, whether the king knew what the dream was or whether he perhaps had forgotten it, and we all know that a lot of times we have intense dreams and we wake up in the morning and we're trying to figure out what the dream was. We just can't remember it, even though it seems so real. And so it's, pro- it's probable that he may have forgotten the dream. Uh, and so, or perhaps he was just wanting to test the magicians because if they could tell him the dream, then he had pretty good confidence that they knew what they were talking about. Uh, otherwise, he was going to tear them limb from limb and destroy their houses and their families and so on. So, obviously, uh, an unregenerated uh, king who would do such a thing, but nevertheless. He seemed to have been worried by the statue, which apparently was very different to the statues that the Babylonians worshipped. We know that the Babylonians were idol worshippers, just like pretty much all of the nations of antiquity except Israel. Uh, And of course, even Israel, unfortunately, they are captive here in this second chapter of Daniel, in the book of Daniel as a whole, for that very reason. The fact that even though they knew the true and living God, they had become idolaters. And so God decided to punish them for that idolatry by sending them into exile. The northern kingdom had gone into exile about 120 or 30 years before this event that is narrated here. So the word goes out to the magicians, uh, and they are, of course, unable to do what the king wants. Uh, And so therefore, they're all going to be executed. This places Daniel in the crosshairs, since he had become one of the court's confidants, and was numbered among the soothsayers and the magicians. And so Daniel and his friends are going to also perish because these other magicians are incapable of telling the dream to the king and to interpret it. So what does Daniel do? He pleads that he given some time. And he goes and prays and receives the revelation from God. The praise of whom we read about the last time. And so what does Daniel do? Great example for the rest of us. Whenever you're in a jam, the first thing you need to do is pray. Unfortunately, that's often the last thing that we think about. Uh, We get bad news about something, right? It's going to cost $5,000 to fix our AC. Well, we start trying to figure out, what are we going to do? We're going to have to borrow money. We're going to have to call somebody to come fix it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, oh, yeah, we need to pray about it, right? Rather than the first thing being the prayer, because that is the first solution, not the last one. It's not the last resort. It's the first resort. And so Daniel here demonstrates that he is the example for us to follow. So continuing in verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will tell its interpretation before the king. 
You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the honor. And wherever the sons of mankind live, or the animals of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Just as iron smashes and crushes everything, so, like iron that crushes, it will smash and crush all these things. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have within it some of the toughness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And just as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be fragile. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another and their descendants, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Just as he saw that a stone was broken off from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, it is commonly believed that Daniel gives the king an interpretation that tracks closely along with four kingdoms that dominated the ancient world from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Rome. Notice also that the quality of the metals begins with the finest, which is gold, but it's also one of the softest uh, of metals. And then this likely indicates that the quality of the kingdoms were going to be uh, not only from the best to the worst, if we may be allowed to use those terminologies, but also that there would be a more splendor for the first kingdom, less for the last one. So from Babylon's splendor, uh, which didn't last very long, the Babylonian kingdom lasted all of about 70, 80 years. It tracked closely with Israel's uh, captivity, as a matter of fact. Um, to Rome's fierceness and strength, which lasted many centuries. And as a matter of fact, the divided Roman kingdom lasted into the Middle Ages. And so it was around for quite some time. So the first kingdom is Babylon. And it's interesting here uh, that we are not left to figure, or to figure out on our own or to guess what these kingdoms are. Because Daniel tells us himself uh, what the kingdoms are. It was the case with Joseph's dream. You remember Joseph's dream? The Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph interprets it and says specifically what things are going to happen and how they were going to happen. So Daniel himself will tell us just what each of these, uh, the sections of the statue mean. In the first place, we have the present kingdom, which is Babylon. Look again at verses 36 to 38. This was a dream, and now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the honor. And wherever the sons of mankind live, or the animals of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. In 605 BC, 
the then world power, which was Assyria, and if you remember, Assyria was the kingdom that took the northern kingdom of Israel captive in 720. It had come to promise in the last years of the 10th, or prominence rather, in the last 10 uh, years of the 10th century BC and was in its death throes. So after about 400 years, 300-400 years, Assyria is about to end its dominance. Egypt and Babylon, among others, have been rebelling against the power of Assyria for a number of decades. Uh, we should remember that it was Assyria, again, who laid siege to the northern kingdom and um, took them captive uh, under uh, their king, who at the time was uh, Shalmaneser V. After that king's death, Assyria, under the leadership of Sargon, defeated the northern kingdom uh, and took that portion of the nation captive. And so you have a couple of kings there who are laying siege to Israel. One begins, the other one ends. It's similar to what happened uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem where Vespasian begins that siege and his son Titus is the one that completes it. The captivity had been going on for about 100 years when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, and Egypt's pharaoh Necho meet at Carchemish, uh, which is an ancient Hittite city, which is now located in the southern part of what today is Turkey. It is here that the two nations meet, and after a pitch battle, Babylon emerges victorious, ensuring its dominance of Western Asia. So the power of Assyria had by this time been broken, and its hold in the Middle East was at its end. Now Babylon becomes the dominant empire in Western Asia. And so it begins to move against other nations, including the southern kingdom of Judah. And just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament uh, by the prophets, Babylon comes and takes over Israel, the southern, or Judah in this case, the southern kingdom. Second Kings 25, Second Chronicles 36, and Jeremiah 52 tell the story of Babylon coming against Judah and taking that nation captive, uh, which is interesting. If you read those stories there, those are some of the most uh, complete stories of that particular event that we have, even compared to secular history. And so it's very interesting uh, to read those three chapters there uh, and how Judah went into captivity. Uh, in addition, Lamentations is believed to have been written by Jeremiah as he witnessed the destruction brought about by the Chaldeans against Jerusalem. And so it is believed that if it wasn't Jeremiah, it was some other uh, writer who is witnessing what's happening to Jerusalem and it's writing about it in the book of Lamentations. There were three separate deportations uh, that took place with the last and greatest one taking place in 586. Between 606 and 586, you know, there's a couple of deportations. The, there's a number of folks in Judah who refused to submit. Even though Jeremiah had said, the Lord says, submit, you know, go into your activity. Seek the good of the land to which you are going. Uh, but a lot of folks decided that, no, they were going to rebel. Some of them escaped to Egypt. Others continued their rebellion. Uh, it is believed that Daniel had come in what was the first wave of that uh, captivity. And by the, time of, by the time of the end of the Babylonian Empire, he was a pretty old man. Uh, so, uh, but of course, that's still a number of years in the future because here he's still a very young man. So the second kingdom is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Uh, look at verse 39a again. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. 
Daniel gives us very little information concerning the following two kingdoms here in Medo-Persia, as well as the one that's following, which will be Greece. Uh, historians, however, commonly believe that the second kingdom is Medo-Persia. And it's believed simply because it was the kingdom that eventually destroyed Babylon and took over the Babylonian Empire. Part of the history of how this took place is given to us in Daniel 5. Uh, if you remember, Daniel 5 is the history of the writing on the wall. Remember, King Belshazzar uh, is throwing a feast, and there's the writing on the wall, and Daniel is called uh, to come in. It's called, actually, by the king's mother, uh, who says, hey, I know this Jewish kid who, in the time of your uh, grandfather, you know, father, but it was his grandfather, actually. He gave that interpretation, and, you know, uh, so he knows. He's got the spirit of the gods, as, you know, pagans would say. And so she called, uh, or he called Daniel. Daniel comes and gives the interpretation. And it was then that uh, Babylon fell that same night. So historically, the end of the Babylonian Empire took place in 536. The Persians, who had been a basal state of the Median Empire, had rebelled against their oppressors. And during the early years of Cyrus' reign in 562 BC, took over the Median Empire. Uh, in 539, they destroyed the Babylonian ar army at Opus on the Tigris River. And so this is a, a war that's going on for a number of years. They then lay siege to the capital of Babylon. Uh, and you know that that's basically how ancient warfare will go. Uh, there were many fortified cities. Usually the, the main city of an empire would be very fortified. And in order for another country, a conquering uh, nation to come and take over, they had to lay siege and try to starve the people out that were in that walled city. And so the Persians uh, had to lay siege to Babylon, to uh, the capital there, in order to do that. So what they do, very ingeniously eventually, is they divert the cause of the Euphrates, which at the time ran through the city and under the walls. And so what the, Medes, what the uh, Persians do is they uh, divert the cost of the river. The river bed obviously becomes dry. And so they simply march under the thick walls and take over uh, the city almost without firing a shot. And so again, this took place the very night that Daniel tells Belchasser that that is what was going to happen. You can imagine that they were feasting and so they weren't in any condition to put up a fight. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy, which was, had been given more than a century earlier, now comes to pass. And Cyrus ascends to the throne of Babylon as he had the throne of Persia. That, however, is a story for another time, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about the return of the exiles at some future date. So the Persian Empire at its height covered many of the areas that Alexander's empire will eventually take over in the centuries to come. And speaking of Alexander and the Greeks, third empire is the Greek empire. Verse 39b says, Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So Alexander the Great determined to become the master of what was then the known world. And he, when he began his, conquer, his conquering, he was in his 20s. So he's a very young man at this time. He is the son of Philip and Macedon. 
uh, and he embarked on one of the greatest conquering enterprises that have been known in the world, both ancient and modern. The speed at which Greece took over uh, what was primarily the Persian kingdom dominion was amazing. At, at the, the height of the kingdom of Greece, of course, most of what today is the northern Middle East, Egypt, and into the northern areas of the Indian subcontinent, including the western portions of what it today is China, was under the dominance of the Greek Empire under Alexander and then later um, under his generals. He dies in his 30s in 323 BC and leaves his kingdom to his four generals. They promptly began infighting, which eventually led the kingdom to disintegrate for the most part. It fractured and you know some remnants of that kingdom were still seen into the second century BC. Uh, for example, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, perhaps the one king of one of the remnant king- kingdoms that is most known, since it was during his reign that the Maccabee revolt takes place in Israel. Uh, I'm not going to go into details about the Maccabees, but the Maccabees revolted against Antiochus in the second century BC. Eventually, they uh, succeed in throwing off that yoke, and for a time, for about a hundred years before uh, the coming of Christ, Israel again becomes an independent nation. Um, so the fourth kingdom now is Rome, verses 40 to 43. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, just as iron smashes and crushes everything. So like iron that crushes, it will smash and crush, crush all these things. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have a, within it some of the toughness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And just as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be fragile. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another and their descendants. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not combine with pottery. So the last of the earthly kingdoms is that of the Roman Empire. Rome was founded, supposedly, by Romulus and Remus in 735 B.C. You remember the story of Romulus and Remus who were, uh, you know, they, they were exposed basically and left uh, out in, in the open. And a wolf, a she-wolf, took them and basically raised them. Uh, and so that's how they survived. So the legend goes that eventually they were the ones that founded the city of Rome in the uh, 8th, or 6th century B.C., it was initially, the city of Rome was initially a small and unimportant city. But Rome's ambitions began to bump against the Hasmonean kingdom. Uh, this was a result of the Roman-Macedonian wars of the latter part of the 3rd century and the beginning of the 2nd century B.C. You remember in there there's the Carthaginian Wars and some of the other wars that Rome begins to uh, get into. Because at the time, of course, you had to demonstrate that you were a dominant power if anybody was going to give you any respect. And so in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., Rome destroys Corinth, begins to dominate Greece. Little by little, takes over the areas which have been dominated by Greece and the Seleucid Kingdom. The Seleucid Kingdom was basically Syria, the Syrian part of the uh, fractured uh, Greek Kingdom. In 63 B.C., Pompey finally marches south, 
And the Judean kingdom becomes little more than a protectorate under the Roman yoke. The Maccabees had uh, gone into a, an alliance with Pompey for Pompey to protect them against some of the other nations that were threatening Israel. Uh, unfortunately for the Jews, Pompey turns uh, against them. And, you know, no honor among thieves, I suppose. And so eventually Pompey takes over Israel and makes it into a Roman protectorate. Finally, in 49 BC, during the first Roman Civil War, Julius crosses the Rubicon and attacks his country. He defeats the Pompeians and is declared dictator. And so if you've seen the movie Romeo and Juliet, or not Romeo and Juliet, um, um, Cleopatra, Cleopatra. Yeah, Roman Julia was a few years later. Uh, Cleopatra, if you've seen that movie, there's a little bit of that in there. Uh, you know, it's not exactly faithful to the history, but, you know, you get a, a flavor for what happened there with Julius Caesar and all that went on with that. Uh, Julius is eventually murdered by Brutus and some others, a number of his cohorts, uh, which, this fact, unleashes the second Roman civil war. And here the parties of Brutus and Cassius on one side, and Octavian on the other, who was Caesar's adopted son, and Antony, he of Cleopatra fame, on the other, battle for supremacy. Eventually Octavian and Antony uh, emerge victorious. It wouldn't be long, however, before Antony, who's under the spell of Cleopatra, rebels against his friend Octavian uh, and is defeated by the latter. Octavian then becomes the first emperor of the Roman Republic in 29 BC and is known as Augustus. And so the first Augustus of Rome is Octavian, who was Julius's adopted son. Augustus reigns until 14 BC, it is during, uh, or AD rather. It is during his reign that Jesus is born uh, and is succeeded by his own adopted son, Tiberius. And Tiberius is the one that's reigning when Jesus is crucified. And so, uh, interesting history there. Uh, we know that Rome eventually rises to great prominence. And at its height, the empire held sway over practically the whole of the Mediterranean world, including North Africa, the Middle East, and into areas of what today is Great Britain. Uh, but the empire uh, always had a fatal weakness. And it was that it did not conquer culturally like the Greek Empire did. Uh, and so therein lies the clay mixed with iron aspect of the statue. And that's why Daniel uh, speaks of that weakness. Uh, in fact, it was Greek that was a common tongue of the empire. And this was a legacy of Alexander's conquest. And its gods, the gods of Rome, were nothing more than the gods of the Greeks with different names. And so Zeus was Jupiter and so on, right? And so nothing more there. So culturally, uh, the world still remained Greek for centuries later. And so the, the, the iron mix of clay eventually becomes the empire's undoing. Later on, of course, we know that the Vandals come and sack Rome uh, in the 5th century. And the kingdom is further divided and becomes even weaker before it finally ends uh, in the Middle Ages. The final kingdom... And this is where it matters most to us. You know, history is a great thing and it's interesting. But the thing that matters most to us is this final kingdom. In verses 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. 
And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Just as you saw that a stone was broken off from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. I should point out here that many critics of the Bible, and of prophecy in particular, they don't believe that uh, such a, any such thing as predictive prophecy, do not believe that Daniel spoke these words sometime in the 6th century B.C. Rather, the idea is that since the prophecies are so vivid and so true to history and to life, Daniel must have been written by somebody else, likely a priest in Jerusalem, sometime during the reign of the Hasmoneans in the 2nd century B.C. And so after all these uh, kingdoms come, uh, that's when this must have been written because it's impossible, according to the critics, for Daniel to have been able to see this so clearly. But for us who believe that God is all-knowing, we have no problem believing that, in fact, Daniel was the one that wrote the prophecy. I mean, after all, if God is all-knowing, if God is God, then he could foretell the future perfectly without any problem at all. Uh, In a different context, Paul said, but I think that the principle still holds, in Acts 26 and 8, when he's talking to Agrippa, and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, he said, why should you think it incredible that God should raise the dead? In other words, if God is God, if he is the God that we believe him to be, why would it be difficult for God to raise the dead, right? It would be as easy as just speaking a word, right? Uh, Back to our passage. It is clear that Daniel here has in mind the kingdom of God. Notice that he says that this kingdom will be established in the days of these kings. Right? The antecedent here is the Roman Empire. And so this can be no other than the kingdom of Christ uh, that would be ushered in and which would eventually destroy the kingdom of Rome and all other kingdoms for that matter because that is the point that the book of Revelation makes is that the kingdom of God will eventually destroy all earthly kingdoms. It will remain forever, will never pass away. That is the story uh, of the Bible and how the Bible ends. Uh, Christ, as we remember, was born uh, around the first, uh, the fourth uh, year in the first century B.C., So, in about 4 B.C., Christ is born. It's a little strange that Christ would have been born before Christ, right? Because obviously we say, you know, Anno Domini, meaning the year of the Lord after Christ, before Christ. His birth is supposed to be what divides uh, the uh, ancient from the more modern. But the problem was that Gregory made a mistake in formulating his calendar, and he ended up putting Christ's birth four years before Christ. Uh, the year zero, which is what he meant to do. And so that's why Christ was born when he was born. And so he was born still under Herod's reign just before Herod dies. Because it's interesting to note that Herod, you remember, tried to kill Christ and kills a lot of the children in Jerusalem in his attempt to do so. Well, he doesn't succeed. What happens? Less than a year later, Herod dies. And he dies, by all accounts, pretty horribly from some stomach disease, similar to what happened to his 
grandson later on, uh, as we are told in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, later on in the book of Daniel, he speaks of his vision and of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And there Daniel indicates that this Son of Man is given a kingdom that will never end. And if you remember in Mark 14, what happens when uh, the high priest asked Jesus, I adjure you by the, the one true God to tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. Right? And what is the answer that Christ gives? Uh, anybody remember? You know, you have said so. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? And so there he speaks about that very uh, exaltation that was going to take place after his resurrection, of which Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7. So he's quoting this passage here. Of course, the uh, high priest tears his garments because he can't believe that Christ would be um, would dare to say such a thing. Right? It's important to note that Daniel says that the destroyed kingdom will not be left to another people. It's interesting to note that once the Roman Empire fell, the kingdoms that came after were primarily diffused, much lesser in scope than that kingdom. Uh, you know, we probably have heard the idea of the British Empire, that the sun never set on the British Empire. But even the British Empire pale in comparison to the Roman kingdom and the, the dominance that the Roman kingdom exerted over the then known world. Uh, Daniel ends by saying that the events he's just narrated are certain to take place and the interpretation is sure. And again, we are made to say that since God is the one that inspires prophecy and who is bringing all these events to take place, he is the one who creates, he is the one that ordains, then of course the interpretation is going to be sure. You know, the word of a faithful God is a faithful word. The word of a true God is a true word. And so it's impossible for God to lie, as Hebrews tells us. And in the context that Hebrews speaks it, speaks it in the context of redemption. But the point is that the writer is making is God doesn't lie. Doesn't lie about this, doesn't lie about anything. Therefore, we can trust his word about salvation and about anything else. Uh, so therein lies the connection to what Daniel said in the passage we discussed last, last time. God is the one who sets up kings and deposes kings. He is the one who creates light and darkness and so on. And so you may be asking, well, what does this statue of Nebuchadnezzar from 2,500 years ago have to do with us? Right? Well, aside from the fact that, as I mentioned, there's that fifth kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ. There's also the fact, as I mentioned that we can have the confidence that God is going to ensure that his kingdom, his church, will endure to the end. And so we can have that confidence that as history tells us, as God has uh, carried his people throughout the centuries, he will carry us as well. Uh, whether by death, you know, eventually we may die before the Lord comes, he will usher us in uh, as he did Lazarus, right? The angels will carry us to his presence. Or whether it's by him coming and sending the angels to gather us uh, while we are still alive. But that, I think, is the main point that's important for us to know today. Of course, at that time, Daniel is writing, uh, Daniel is one of the prophets of the uh, captivity. And so he's writing to a people who are sitting in Babylon and thinking, you know, wondering, what's happened? Why are we here? Especially 
for some of the folks of that second generation who have been born in Babylon and who were thinking, you know, they didn't have that connection to the promised land. And so he reminds them that, yes, you will be delivered. God will see you through. Uh, and he did that for them. He will do that for us. The God of the Old Testament is indeed a sovereign God. And this is a fact acknowledged by all, since it is so obvious. It is this sovereign God who gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and who also gave the interpretation. And we can see in the events of history that these things, which were spoken by Daniel in reply to the king's dream, came to pass, and they took place in such a remarkable way that it's difficult for the unregenerated mind to believe that they were spoken before they took place. How is it possible for a man to know such events? They ask. Events which in some cases would not take place for centuries. Simply because God is the one who gave him that understanding. And so in the kingdoms of the world, we see God's unmistakable hand. We see that today as well. You know, and sometimes it's hard for us to say, well, how is God's hand working in our nation today, for example? But we can be sure that God is working in our nation, that he's bringing about his purposes uh, in everything that takes place. There are four earthly kingdoms depicted by Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Uh, all of them came to an end. Some, such as Babylon, came to an end rather quickly. As I mentioned, only lasted about 70 years or so, so not very long. But they all came to naught because God determined that it would be so. No matter how strong and mighty the empires may be, they will all fall at the word of God. Therein comes the stone that's made without hands and does what? Destroys the statue. Because no kingdom, no power on earth is capable of standing against the power of the almighty God. The final kingdom is the kingdom that goes on forever. And what gives us comfort today is that we are part of that kingdom. And as such, we should not have fear. Regardless of how grim things may look today, in the end, we're going to reign with Christ. We are in a kingdom that will never end, will never pass away, that uh, continues to uh, prosper, continues to find more and more uh, people to join into that kingdom. They're translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as Paul puts it in Colossians. And so we don't have to fear anything or anyone because God will always be control, uh, in control of everything that takes place in our lives and in the lives of all men and all peoples everywhere.